So please let yourself sit down, come back, find a way to sit that's comfortable and at ease. as you sit and let yourself listen in a certain very fundamental way the Buddhist teachings are nothing new they're really a reminder of that inner wisdom that we already carry what my teacher Ajahn Chah used to call the one who knows inside so you can just listen in that spirit as a kind of reminder to the heart. So this evening um, I would like to continue with this series of teachings that we've been working with during the summer which are a description of our own true nature or the Buddha nature. Um, Sometimes they're also called the qualities of inner perfection, the perfection of heart and mind um, that is natural to us as we awaken. And we've talked about the various perfections or inner qualities in the in weeks that have led up to this one of generosity and the um, natural integrity of the heart, of energy and renunciation and wisdom. And tonight, uh, the quality that continues in this reflection on our Buddha nature is called the perfection or the awakening of the quality of patience, um, which is a really good thing to be reminded of, especially in coming into a monastery. Because the good things that happen when you come to the temple is that really nothing happens, you know, and nothing is supposed to happen. In a certain way, um, it's different than almost all the other activities of our ordinary worldly life. A poem from Zen Master Ryo Khan. One narrow path surrounded by dense forests. On the sides, mountains lie in darkness. The autumn leaves have begun to fall. No rain, but still the rocks are dark with moss. Returning to my hermitage along a way known by few, carrying a basket of fresh mushrooms and a jar of pure water from the temple well. Who could ask for more? So simple. To come into the monastery or the temple is really to enter into a different relationship with time, which is unhurried. It's a beautiful thing for those of us over the years who've had a privilege to talk to or spend time with the Dalai Lama. Because one of the qualities that he possesses among many 
uh, amazing capacities of compassion and so forth, is this quality of being with an individual when he speaks with you and holds your hands and looks at you as if you were the only person in the world and as if he had all the time of eternity. Um, and it's amazing how much can happen in about 10 seconds when that quality of just being is there. So this is the quality of the perfection of the heart and the awakening of the heart, um, of patience, stillness, inwardly. You know, I think about all these classes over the years, 19 years of Monday night classes and all the retreats. Now we've had our residential retreat center open for the last four years and I was sitting here thinking about it. And we're probably up to about half a million hours of meditation in that meditation hall so far. I don't know if you calculated it in some way. How many yogi days we have and how many hours and so forth. And then how many breaths, you know, millions of breaths attended to in the course of these 19 years. And I know some of you only notice a few in the course of a sitting, but that's all right. <laughs> they count. They all count. And don't think it's a small thing. Because just to come back and be here for one or two breaths and one's own sense of the body and, you know, hear the rustle of the animals as we come to nightfall and remember just to be present in the midst of the complexity is already an amazing thing. Even a little bit is important. But there comes this idea as one enters the spiritual path or as you go along in it, when will I be done? When will the heart be satisfied? When do I get enlightened? You know that story of the young man who goes into the Zen monastery charging and says, I really want to be a Zen monk. I'm going to practice and, you know, please ordain me. And the master says, oh, you know, you could come and practice here. He said, well, how long will it take till enlightenment? Pastor looks at him, 10 years in your case. So long? I mean, how about if I really practice? Oh, 20 years. <laughs> you try that hard. But why? Why did you double it? I mean, I, I would give myself to it completely. And he said, oh, in your case, 30 years, you know, right? So we come with a certain kind of ambition. And we might think at times that we enter meditation or a spiritual life with the goal of perfecting ourselves, of fixing ourselves and our personality and the way we are, perfecting ourselves so that we're only wise and holy, you know, with only the best of intention in every moment, and we'll be so calm that we're never depressed, <laughs> never lonely, never angry or greedy, never have any more need for anybody or anything, you know. We do enough of this that we'll get it all together. And all we have to do is more, right? Do some more retreats, <clears throat> and more meditation, and we'll get there finally, and then we'll be done. <laughs> but it doesn't seem to work that way, does it? <laughs> Things actually keep changing, don't they? very uncertain. And we have this great revelation, oh, now I understand. And then the next day, now what was that? I really, it was so, it was so good. <laughs> Did I write it down? No. Well, I've got to hurry up. I've got to go out and do more practice. Maybe it will come back. It's like that Yiddish expression, sleep quickly, we need the pillows, right? <laughs> hurry up and meditate and get more 
So I go to this post office in India when I'm there some years ago to mail a letter back to America, you know. And you know how India is, those of you who've been there. And I go in the post office and I'm in a hurry because then I'm supposed to meet somebody who's coming and so forth. And there are all these lines and I stand in this long line to get a stamp. And I get finally through the line to the window and I need a stamp for her. And he says, I'm sorry, um, you have to weigh the letter first. I said, okay. He said, that line over there. <laughs> so I get in that line and I weigh it all the way up and then the letter gets weighed and then I go back in the line to get a stamp. And he says, oh, I'm sorry, sir. This is, this is for domestic stamps. You must go in the foreign line. So I get in that line and partway through, then the window goes down and they say, lunchtime. It's closed for an hour, right, for taking lunch. Okay, so I come back after lunch, right? And I get in the line um, for a foreign stamp, right? And I finally get the stamps, yeah. But then um, there's another line to have them canceled. And you have to have them canceled in certain places because it's so poor that if your stamps aren't canceled, then it's also a good possibility that someone will take the letter and take the stamps off because it's a day's wages for somebody. So there you are, like spending the entire day to mail this letter. We live in a different kind of culture than that. <laughs> we live in a culture that is, um, in some ways, the opposite. That's really a driven culture, driven by speed and consumerism and getting things done and efficiency and money and greed. It is. You live in the hurried culture, if you will. You know, and they tried to put the um, auto speeds down to 55 miles an hour and kind of reduce our our um, gases from all our cars and the global warming stuff like that. didn't last very long. It went back up to 60. You notice people are doing 65, 70. Just it's the speed, um, and you feel it if you come back from any other part of the world that lives more slowly. As soon as you enter the airport or get on the roads, you know, and it's not just us as adults, but there's the hurried children that we see. Um, I was reading about this uh, psychiatrist at Tufts University, Dr. Elkin, um, had written this whole book on the hurried child where he has eight and nine-year-old children coming in who have stress diseases, ulcers from trying to get ahead, you know. And places in the, in the parenting book where they sell alphabet cards and special things to begin to teach your children, even when they're in the womb, you can start reading to them so that they get, you know, prepared for a good kindergarten and can work their way up to a good college, you know, and then a good company or something like that. And it is, it's serious. I mean, people get prep, prepared for interviews to get in the right kindergarten, you know. It is. Sick, isn't it, actually? <laughs> Come on. And then the kids become more consumers as well. I mean, they're, they're you know, we're selling more two children, they're seen more as consuming. Um, yet all of this has a shadow. It's actually a terribly painful way to live, whether it's for our children or for ourselves. It's painful because we don't honor the cycles of nature. You remember this story, because I read it every year at least once, from Zorba the Greek where he writes, 
Teresa, as it's Cousin Bacchus, actually. I remember one morning when I discovered the cocoon in the bark of a tree, just as the butterfly was making a hole in its case, preparing to come out. I waited a while, but it was too long appearing and I was impatient, so I bent over and breathed on it to warm it, and it warmed it as quickly as I could, and the miracle began to happen before my eyes, faster than life. The case opened, the butterfly started slowly crawling out, and I shall never forget my horror when I saw how its wings were folded back and crumpled. The wretched butterfly tried with its whole trembling body to unfold them. Bending over, I tried to help it with my breath in vain. It needed to be hatched out patiently, and the unfolding of the wings needed to be a gradual process in the sun. And now it was too late. My breath had forced the butterfly to appear all crumpled before its time. It struggled desperately, and a few seconds later died in the palm of my hand. So that's the story. In one of the books, uh, Marie-Louise von Franz is having a dialogue with Carl Jung. She's one of his great successors or disciples. And they're looking at the nature and mythology and in the psyche of evil and of the devil. And um, Dr. Jung is talking about how um, the devil is really an experience that people have. And and, uh, so Marie-Louise says, well, you know, is there some common way that we experience the devil? And he says, yes, when you get that telephone call that says you must come down and sign the papers immediately tonight, even before anything happens, you have to come and do this thing, and it's right now. He said, you know who's speaking, right? (laughs) Anything that's, that's hurried in that way is what he's talking about, which makes us take leave of our senses. He's speaking of in a metaphorical way is the work of the devil. Spiritual practice speaks to the perfection of listening of waiting, if you will, of living the questions, of the ah, just being where we are. The verse from T.S. Eliot, I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope, for hope would be hope of the wrong thing. Wait without love, for love would be love of the wrong thing. There is yet faith, but the faith and the love and the hope are all in the waiting. Still, we sit and meditate, and it comes to us that we're practicing, and if we wait long enough, something good will come along better than what we have. That really we're kind of, we're doing it and trying to, you know, learn. But somewhere secretly in there is this waiting, waiting. What's going to happen next? Something better. And in that way, um, even patience isn't the right word. Zen Master Suzuki Roshi says that a better way to express this is constancy. Because patience implies that if you're patient enough, something good will come. And the quality of constancy is our willingness to be present for things as they are. 
for what is, for what is true. The breath that passes in and out, the planning mind that we bow to, the sadness or tears that come naturally because grief has its season in our life, the joys that come to us, the beautiful moments. As it says in the Tao, the wise women and men of the Tao, those who understood, had no mind to fight the Tao. And they did not, by their own contrivance, try to help the Tao along. They let things unfold and discovered, as we can, that they could sit on this earth or walk or be present for the seasons of life, the natural unfolding of things as they actually are. And what a wise and gracious way to exist as a human. So a friend remarks to the prophet, says Rumi, why is it I get screwed in business deals? It's like a spell. I become distracted by business talk and make the wrong decision. Usually it's at night when they say, come and sign the papers quickly, right? <laughs> Muhammad replies, stipulate with every transaction that you need three days to make sure. Deliberation is one of the qualities of the divine. Throw a dog a bit of something, he sniffs to see if he wants it. Be that careful. Sniff with your wisdom nose, then decide. Thank you, Rumi. I mean, in the end, what's the hurry? Where are you going? To retirement? Come on. You know, to old age? Let's hurry up and get there, right? There's this wonderful slow food movement I'm sure most of you have heard about in Europe that's spreading across Italy and France and places like that. Whole towns that are committed to everything slowing down. Oh, thank you. Now, the truth is, this is truth in, in uh, teaching here, the truth is, and my daughter insists that I speak of this when I tell these, talk about this, that I'm actually a pretty impatient fellow myself. Um, I think quickly about things and just decide I act quickly. I hate to be late. I, you know, try and get things done. Even the way I go upstairs, I take them like two at a time. Even at my age, I'm kind of leaping around. It's sort of a temperament or something, I don't know, but just how it's wired in there. So I work with my impatience. Um, and I remember one year that I was teaching our annual three-month retreat in Massachusetts at the center there. Now we have an annual winter, spring two-month retreat here as well. And this person came who'd been listening to my Dharma tapes um, from uh, Europe. Um, and they said, oh, I listened and your, the words that were so helpful to me and I really liked you know, the way you presented the teachings. And then I came and I met you and you were different. <laughs> and I said, oh, they said, yeah. I, I said, well, well, you can be honest. They said, well, actually, I was kind of disappointed. <laughs> I said, oh. I said, yeah, I expected this very placid, peaceful person. And I saw you running around up and down the stairs at the center like some Italian shoe salesman, right? <laughs> so... No, we do the best we can. 
When I pay attention to my own impatience, when I'm mindful of it or listen, I notice that I'm not just impatient for a result. I'm not just waiting for something, but that there's more to it. There's often also something that I don't want to be with in the present. A frustration, and the chord before the resolution, you know, the seventh chord that's not resolved yet. Uh, an emptiness or a boredom or an incompletion or uh, a pain that's there that I want some resolution for. Or maybe just the emptiness of I don't want to lose time and if I really listen there's some subtle fear of well wait, when do I get to have time for myself? Or I'm growing old too fast, I have to get all this in. You know those kind of very subtle dialogue that's underneath all of that that drives it all. Or the fundamental question, who would I be if I wasn't doing stuff? You know, because we're so identified with the doer in this culture. In India, it's really different. In America, you meet somebody and you say, what do you do, right? That's sort of our conversation opening. In India, you don't ask, what do you do? Partly because a lot of people don't do anything in India, which I really respect. <laughs> it's wonderful. Um, but also um, because the whole sensibility of the culture is not about doing. If you ask, want to understand who somebody is, you say, what form of God do you worship? Is it Shiva or Durga, you know, or Saraswati or Vishnu or Krishna? And that tells you about this person. Imagine asking that to somebody in America. What form of God do you worship instead of what do you do? So, so who are we when we're not identified with all that doing? What is that? The opposite of impatience, in a way, then, is not really patience. The opposite of impatience is contentment. Is a moment by moment, presence of just being, of trust, of rest, of putting your bags down. You know, there you are on the train with your luggage in your hands and you don't put them down because you know you're going to have to get off at some point and you don't even put the luggage down. We're so much on our way. And it's the quality of contentment, the moments, and we all know them, of contentment, that bring us a sense of wonder that bring us back to the inexplicable mystery of being alive, of turkeys wandering around this land. I mean, the strangest looking creatures. The only stranger thing around is us, probably, right? But they're, they're pretty weird, too, you know? And of um, whatever you want to name is, 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 is miraculous. And, uh, unfathomable. It is trees. Just sit quietly and look, pick a tree, any tree, and sit and look at it for a while. It gets really interesting. It's amazing. Its roots, and the, the, it becomes an instrument for transforming the minerals of the ground and the sunlight into this tree form. Extraordinary that it can do that. So, the opposite of Impatience 
is really contentment, it's presence, it's wonder. Again from Rumi, he writes, Both the rose and the thorn appear together in spring, and the wine of the grape is not without its headaches. There's a lot in those two lines, huh? The rose and the thorn, the wine and its headaches. Are you waiting for it to be different? Do not be an impatient bystander on this path. By God, there is no death worse than expectancy. Set your heart on gold and listen to my advice. What sprouts up every spring will wither by autumn, but the rose garden of love is always here. It needs no special season. Set your heart on gold, which is on the reality of the present. This is where it's at, where things are happening. The future is an idea. The past, gone. To live in the reality of the present. And in that sense, in spiritual life, you know, there's a sense of progress, like science, physics, you know, progressing, or electronics. It's just not the game. So one Zen master was talking to the student and said, so what have you been doing? He said, oh, I've been meditating, you know, really devoting myself to my meditation. The master said, that's fine. Um, and how do you meditate? He said, I am trying to purify myself in meditation so that I can become like a Buddha. And the Zen master in this famous story picks up a brick and he starts rubbing it with a piece of cloth. And the student says, what are you doing? He says, I am rubbing this so that it will become a mirror. And the Zen student says, but it will never be a mirror by you doing that. And the Master says, and you will never become a Buddha by doing what you're doing here. A brick is a brick. Sorrow is sorrow. Beauty is beauty. And who we are is who we are already. And to become a Buddha isn't to become someone else other than who you are but it's to awaken to what is here now and to love it and accept it and honor it with respect and presence and compassion just now. To tend the garden that is given to you, to plant the seeds in your own garden, follow the seasons of your garden, because you know its seasons, to trust that. You know, there are the seasons when you're a young parent and you have this little child, this one-year-old sitting in the high chair, and you feed them and then they smear the food all over, because food is interesting texture as well as taste, right? And, and, and then they take their spoon and they drop it on the floor to see if gravity is still working, right? You pick it up and you give it back to them and they say, I wonder if it's still working, and they drop it again, you know? Because they're little scientists, really, trying to figure out how did, how did I get into this and how does it all work, right? And what a beautiful thing to be present for that child for the 10,000th time they drop the spoon and say, yep, gravity is still happening. Okay, that's one of the rules in this place, okay. Um, or cooking and cleaning. How many dishes have you cleaned in your life? You know, you have more to clean, right? And it's just how it goes. So you can either be, I get them done and get something else, or just be actually attentive to the mystery of where we are. 
let the heart be present for every meal that we cook and every person that we speak to like the Dalai Lama. And that's where the opening takes place in spiritual life. That's what the invitation of meditation is. The perfection is of entering that which is timeless, returning to the reality of the present. Then Master Isa, who writes, In my little hut there is nothing, there is everything. Empty little hut, there is nothing, there is everything. And in truth, every moment has that. In every moment there is nothing and there is everything. It's useful, actually, to begin to study or notice what keeps us from contentment. You know, what drives are in there? What stories do we tell ourselves? What are the things that are hard to be with that keep us from really just going, ah, I can be here this moment? Because as we know them, we can make our peace with them so that we can be fully alive. I mean, if you got the phone call tomorrow from your doctor that, I'm sorry, but the tests show that you have uh, metastatic cancer or something like that, your life would change in a second. Oh, this whole thing. What am I going to do? I have just this much time and all of this. And then suppose you get a phone call the following day that says, I'm sorry, those weren't your tests. It was a mistake. Right? And you go, oh, I have my life back. You do. You have it back. <laughs> you have it. I mean, it's as if you had those two phone calls already. Because you do have your life. And it's such a treasure. And the only thing that you don't know is how long you have. That is the truth. You know you will die. We all will. The only uncertainty is when. So if we look, not knowing that, just to be alive this evening, this day, to sit, to feel our breath, to see the faces of people around us, to walk out under the bay trees, to watch the wind come up or the fog roll in when you drive across the Golden Gate Bridge or to hug your partner or your children, people around you. So this quality of the perfection of patience or contentment is a kind of trust in the seasons Don't the leaves fall down just like that? To trust in the body, to be born, to dance, to sing, to write, to give ourselves to the world, to love, in due season, all of those things, and to die. Oh, some years ago when I went to live in Bali on sabbatical with my family, my daughter Caroline, different times we lived in Bali. She studied Balinese dance, but this time she was six years old and she did a few months of study at the Sugriwa School of Dance in Ubud, Bali. And, um, many of the children in Bali are 
learned to dance, and she had other girls in her class. It was really wonderful. And it was just near the end of the visit, and she was invited to do a dance performance. Um, and uh, I was going to go and take pictures of it, brought our video camera, and um, got there in the afternoon, and they'd set up the little stage at the school and so forth. And then they began to dress her for the dance. And it was getting late in the afternoon. Light was starting to gradually fade, and they spent so long dressing her, they put on this silk sarong and this gold kind of uh, waist band that they did, and then they wrapped silk all around her about 15 times, and then they put on makeup, more makeup than a 16-year-old, I mean, a six-year-old girl could dream of. She was so ecstatic. Oh, I look so great. <laughs> then the, the earrings and a gold crown because she was going to dance Sita. And, and then the teacher's wife took off her own gold necklace and put it on her. And I'm sitting there saying, you know, the light isn't so good. Hurry up. I want my daughter to dance. i got to record this. And getting really impatient. Um, and they took close to an hour to get her ready to dance. And I, I noticed my impatience and kind of breathed and gradually let go of it. And then I talked to the teacher afterward and told him, you know, that was amazing. You spent so much time preparing her. And he said, well, um, he said what I knew of the arts in Bali. He said, you know, here in, in our country, um, we don't dance, we don't paint, we don't make masks um, for uh, one another. We do it for the gods. Um, and it's believed in Bali that every artist, whether you're six years old or 60 years old, that every person who does a dance or paints a painting does it for the gods and is an honorable artist. And so um, he explained, so your daughter was given the same care that I would have given to the princess of Ubud when she was performing in the palace, because it's not for us. It's for the gods. It's such a beautiful thing to see. Thomas Merton writing as he does as, a, as an artist and a poet and writer. He says, if you write for God or for the divine, you will reach many men and women and bring them joy. But if you write for men and women, you may make some money and give someone a little joy and may make a noise in the world for a little while. Um, but if you write for self-promotion, you can read what you're, you yourself have written, and after ten minutes you'll be so disgusted you'll wish you were dead. And that's his analysis of it. So patience, in a way, means when we sit or walk or speak or make art or make love, it really means to touch the divine. To touch that which is sacred or holy in the rhythm of the stars and the rhythm of our breath and of the seasons. There is enlightenment, there is awakening, and it is our birthright. It is our true nature, our Buddha nature. And to be patient in this deep sense of contentment is to discover in ourselves this Buddha that can look, or the Dalai Lama who lives within you, or whoever you want to call it, this capacity of heart to meet this person in this moment in this situation without argument or rejection 
without ambition, to meet the rhythms of day and night, the birth and death, and hold them in the heart of compassion and say, yes, this too is this life, this mysterious life into which we have been born. Again, from T.S. Eliot, where he writes, In this brief transit where dreams cross, wavering between the prophet and the loss, blessed sister, holy mother, spirit of the fountain, spirit of the garden, suffer us not to mock ourselves with falsehood. Teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still even among these rocks. Poets say things in such extraordinary ways. Teach us to care and not to care. So much in those five, six words. Teach us to sit still even among these rocks. Partly why one meditates not to become something or get something, but to stop, to listen, to find that love that is eternal in us, in the seasons of the world. And from there, from this place in us that is timeless, there comes a strength and generosity and integrity that is who we really are. And it doesn't matter what we're up against or what difficulties we face. We just go in the right direction and keep planting the seeds. I had this sent to me recently because I've been thinking a lot about the insanity of the Middle East and what's going on there and terrible suffering on all sides and then the complete craziness that we're about to start some huge war with Iraq. And it's pretty much a done deal if you listen to Washington, you know. Um, uh, I don't know, I mean, it's almost difficult to even find words. I know that when my daughter was in preschool and people were hitting each other with blocks, you know, at three years old, the whole big thing was to say, use your words, right? Don't actually pick up the blocks and whack the other kid over there because they took something of yours. Um, developmentally, as a nation, <laughs> we haven't gotten very far. But the truth is that um, it's, it's the source of incredible suffering. And I'm not saying there isn't danger and that there aren't weapons of mass destruction, which there's as good a likelihood they will be used if we start a war as not, you know. I mean, it's terrible. But anyway, this one group in Israel that was, um, that's called Grush Shalom, that won the kind of alternative Nobel Prize this last year for their work, their activists um, are Israeli Jews. Um, and their work includes going and rebuilding the houses of Palestinians that are destroyed by the Israeli army and filling in the trenches dug by the army to cut off Palestinian villages or harvesting olives on behalf of villagers prevented by settlers from harvesting their own crops. Um, 
or painting a green line on all the roads where the um, Israel and the Palestinian territories meet to signify that there's really two separate countries here. But then they go around and they do it. This, they do the same for the Israelis who are in need. They don't say just the Palestinians, because it's never one-sided, you know. It's never one-sided. It's just tending to. And then their work gets obliterated, like a sandcastle does, and they go and they do it again. And that really is the work, even when things seem hopeless, um, is just to plant the seeds. You know, and if it takes 2,000 years for the sequoia to grow, it takes it 2,000 years, you just plant the seeds. The famous French general, Marshal Lautre, asked his gardener to plant a row of trees of a rare variety in his garden the next day. The gardener said that he'd be glad to do so, but cautioned the general that trees of this type take a century to grow to full size. In that case, replied the general, plant them this afternoon. (laughs) We need that. We need to know that what matters is how we do things moment to moment, that we can plant our garden in that fashion, and that that's the gift that we bring to this earth, the gift of peace, the gift of not making war, the gift of presence, for one another over and over. So I have to read you a story tonight, again with the caveat from my daughter. My daughter says, Dad, it's a little hypocritical that you read this story to them. And I said, well, Caroline, you know, and it's so amazing because when you're little, you know, I remember when she was this little tiny girl and a a year between birthdays was an eternity. When is my birthday going to come again? Remember how time... A summer would go on and on and on and on. And now she's just about 18 and a senior in high school applying to colleges. And I'm thinking, slow down, you know, stay home longer, don't go away. And what was eternal is, isn't <laughs> in that way. Um, so she said, okay, Dad, it's, it's you know, if you're going to read this story, be honest about it. So... Um, <laughs> So I said, I'll, I'll read it, but I'm, I just I identify with Toad instead of Frog in the story. This is Frog and Toad together. Frog was in his garden. Toad came walking by. Oh, wait a second, I have to begin this again. Thus I have heard, right, this is like a Buddhist sutra. In the deer park in India, these words were spoken. Frog was in his garden. Toad came walking by. What a fine garden you have, Frog, he said. Yes, said Frog. It is very nice, but it was hard work. I wish I had a garden, said Toad. Here are some flower seeds. Plant them in the ground, said Frog, and soon you will have a garden. How soon, asked Toad. (laughs) Quite soon, said Frog. So Toad ran home. He planted the flower seeds. Now seeds, said Toad, start growing. Toad walked up and down a few times. The seeds did not start to grow. Toad put his head close to the ground and said loudly, Now seeds start growing. Toad looked at the ground again. The seeds did not start to grow. Toad put his head very close to the ground and shouted, Now seeds start growing! Frog came running up the path. What is all this noise? he asked. My seeds will not grow, said Toad. 
You are shouting too much, said Frog. These poor seeds are afraid to grow. <laughs> My seeds are afraid to grow, asked Toad. Of course, said Frog. Leave them alone for a few days. Let the sun shine on them. Let the rain fall on them. Soon your seeds will start to grow. That night, Toad looked out of his window. Drat, said Toad. My seeds have not started to grow. They must be afraid of the dark. <laughs> Toad went out to his garden with some candles. I will read the seeds a story, said Toad. Then they will not be afraid. Toad read a long story to his seeds. All the next day, Toad sang songs to his seeds. And all the next day, Toad read poems to his seeds. And all the next day, Toad played music to his seeds. Toad looked at the ground. The seeds still did not start to grow. What shall I do, cried Toad. These must be the most frightened seeds in the whole world. Then Toad felt very tired, and he fell asleep. Toad, Toad, wake up, said Frog. Look at your garden. Toad looked at his garden. Little green plants were coming up out of the ground. At last, shouted Toad, my seeds have stopped being afraid to grow. And now you will have a nice garden too, said Frog. Yes, said Toad, but you were right, Frog. It was very hard work. <laughs> Let's sit, huh? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.